All right, if we can have everybody to their seats, please. To your seats, please. When Mike did a call to worship, I was encouraged. There's one thing I just want to say from my perspective, because he mentioned the Super Bowl and cheering. I will not be cheering today. The Redskins are not in the Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, I'm so offended, I want to protest. I identify as a Skins fan. If you do not, the door is there. I'm kidding, sort of. When Paul said there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, he didn't know about the skins. He didn't understand the context. So I just want to make sure you know he was talking about ethnic diversity, not sports affiliation. I'm excited. Hey, this week, I'm excited for, for a lot of things, one another. I've been encouraged by the two, the previous two meetings on anxiety. I mean, last time we did, a, we did answer the question, is anxiety sinful? And we did a case study on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was powerful. I feel like a lot of people benefited from that. This Wednesday, we're going to be going through practically. So let's get into the nooks and crannies of anxiety. A lot of us struggle with it to varying degrees. And we're going to get into how do we actually go after it as opposed to just, de- just tolerating it, right? Because I think many of us can feel like we're victims to it, like it comes upon us and we don't know what to do. But there are things that we can do. I think the Bible does help us say some things and think some things, believe some things, but there's some practical things that we can do. So Wednesday night, I'm looking forward to that. And Friday night, looking forward to that as well. The best way to participate in the concert Friday night is you got to go on iTunes you got you to look for Be Real. His debut album is on iTunes. You got to go get his album. If you don't get it, you don't know Jesus. I'm telling you, if you, you got to get it so you can hear it. The album's called Cutthroat, and you're going to see him standing in the album covers, him like this. Don't be scared. That's Brian. He's with us. All right? And get the appendix if you haven't heard it, so that way you can participate Friday night. All right. We have returned back to our red light, green light series on Romans. For those of you that know, you know. (laughs) Open to Romans chapter 6. This is chapter we're in. Just a brief recap of chapter 5 before we jump into chapter 6. Obviously, when, when the writers of Scripture are writing these letters, Paul in particular, we're not making the assumption that he is writing in sections but sitting down and writing the letter. And even if he did pause at some point in time, we don't know when he paused, but we know he's making a logical argument. So the things that he's doing, the style in which he's presenting his argument, biblical theological argument, has a real direction and a real purpose. Now, he's inspired by God to write scripture. And so we've, we've kind of looked at, we've gotten to finish chapter five at the end of last year. And now we're going to pick up in chapter 6. But remember in chapter 5, where he was, was he was contrasting sort of Adam and the the, the fall, all all humanity 
are sinful because Adam, because of Adam. I'm not going to go into all those details. Our website, solidrockchurch.net. You can go back online and look at those, listen to those sermons if you want. But he's contrasting the distinctions between Adam and Jesus and saying, if Adam and his sin caused all these things to happen in humanity, then Christ, who is greater than Adam, his grace is greater than Adam because when Adam sinned, he was the only one that did it. When Christ comes to forgive, he's forgiving trillions of sins that have happened from billions of people. So the grace to forgive sins is greater than the actual sin that brought sin into the world. And so he's making this distinction, and he ends, he ends Romans 5, and beginning in verse 18 with these words. Then he calls it the trespass, which is what Adam did. He says this, so then, as though one trespass, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, meaning everyone is guilty, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone, which is Jesus dying on the cross, and people who believe in them are now justified. They're no longer sinful from God's perspective. They're not sinners in the same way they were prior to Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, he says, for just as though through one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law, talking about, the law is essentially what Moses brought in, right? So think of the Ten Commandments and all of the other laws that are in Leviticus and things like that, but essentially think Ten Commandments. The law came along to multiply the trespass, meaning before, you know, uh, do not disrespect your mother and father, honor your mother and father, do not lie, do not commit. Before that came, people didn't know that those things were sinful. So when God explains that this is wrong, now you have the knowledge that this is wrong. You know, my kids, I remember when my kids were babies. There was a point, we lived in this one house and we had this hot, this heater, this one heater. And we were always worried about our kids touching it. So we would try to tell them, no, 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 no. This is hot, hot. And they couldn't see me like, hot. I say, it's hot. They were like, hot. I say, yes, it's hot, no touch. So they could repeat what I said, but they didn't understand the concept of it being hot. But one day, it was turned on, was off my game. I was doing something, and I turned, I heard my son Mateo scream. And I turned around, and he had put his hands on the hot heater, and it was on. And I grabbed him really quickly, and then we washed his hands off with cold water as best as we could. And he was crying, and we knew that it would hurt for some time, and we did what we could to make sure that he wasn't in pain. It felt terrible. But it was just a heater. It just happened to be right where he crawled. There's nothing we could do about it. He never touched that heater again. Because he understood when I say that's hot, he was like, I know. <laughs> he understood. I know it's hot. I felt it. It's hot. He understood that. This reality that, that the, when the law comes, when God says this is sinful, 
Now people understand, oh, okay, so, so this desire that I feel, this thought that I have, this behavior that I'm doing is actually wrong. But prior to God saying, let me tell you what it looks like to glorify me, they didn't know these things as well. So when he says the law came along to multiply the trespass, he just means the law came and showed you that it's the trespass, the going against God's word, going against the law of God is a lot of things. It's, it multiplied it. It made it like, whoa, we're actually way more sinful than we thought because we didn't know all these things were bad until God said they're bad. Just like my son didn't understand what hot was until he experienced it. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So even though there's all this sin now, Jesus Christ is the epitome of grace. And grace is essentially just we favor that we don't deserve. That's the best way to summarize. There's a lot of people who have different ways to summarize it, and some are clever, and there's acronyms, grace. God's, it's, you deserve to go to hell, and you not because of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what grace is, essentially. So he says grace multiplied even more. So even though all this sin came, here comes Jesus eventually to die on the cross and forgive people for their sins. And not the sins that they committed until they believed in them, but the sins that would happen throughout their lifetime. We're not forgiven for the sins prior to conversion. We're forgiven for the sins in this life until conversion is over. And we stand before Jesus and we no longer need faith because we can see him. So it says, where sin, sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, because people die because of sin, so grace also reigns through righteousness, resulting in eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin and it was sort of, and death was sort of the boogeyman of humanity. I mean, even now, we've talked about this before, even now, many Christians are so afraid to die, even though Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But I meet more Christians who are afraid of the afterlife as if somehow there's no hope, there's no promised reality after this life. More Christians are afraid to die. I know some Christians that are so afraid to die that they don't live in this life. And so there's this eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures have com complete this by telling us that in the book of Revelation, it highlights as best as our imagination can, can come up. God gives us imagery to explain that there will be eternal life with Jesus Christ for those who believe in him and then persevere throughout their lifetime. Would by that mean continuing to believe in him despite the challenges that it proposes. So here he's saying like death, death was the boogeyman. People are afraid to die. I remember when I was in the street, the drug dealer and all of that stuff, and I remember... I was around dudes who were just evil, just dudes who killed people. And we looked up to those dudes on some level because they, they went hard. They had heart. They actually killed dudes. And I remember one time I was hanging out with one dude that we called Reebok. And he was just a killer. Like, he killed about four or five people. And I remember having a real conversation with him. And in a rare moment of transparency, even he was aware that if he died, he'd go to hell. There was a fear of death, even in him, who seemed like he's not afraid of nothing. There was a transparency that said, you know what? 
I know if I die where I'm going. But it wasn't enough to make him stop going in that direction. It wasn't enough. So he feared death. Death has been the boogeyman of humanity until Christ came. So you get 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Christ rose from the dead, which means there's life after death, which means that those who believe in Jesus Christ will experience life after death. And so death is not supposed to cripple the believer. We're supposed to be like, all right, I'm not looking. It's not like I'm sitting here wanting to die. I mean, if you're praying to die, don't pray for me. I mean, you know, don't, I mean, I'm not praying to this. Like, you know, I was on a, I was on an airplane in, uh, I was preaching at a conference in Raleigh, December 28th, and I was on a flight going from here to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I've flown a lot in my life, and this was the first time I thought, wow, we're going to die. There was so much turbulence when we got to the city I was sitting beside an elder woman named Diane. She was probably in her 80s, and we had been conversating some. And the plane had so much turbulence that it went up and then slammed us down that I grabbed onto her seat to get balance, and she grabbed onto my hand. And we looked at each other and both thought, wow, this might be it. She was older. She lived her life. So she was resolved. I was like, man, I kind of wanted to see my kids grow up and get a little older. It was the first time I thought, we're going to die on this plane. And then there was another. Then the plane started going up really, really high. And I was like, no. <laughs> no. Because I'm looking out the window. And people were like, what's it look like? And I said, we're getting closer to the ground. And then you would hear the, the engine, and we start going up. And I was like, no, fly under the storm. Because if we crash, at least we look like we might survive. But now the house that looked kind of normal now looks like an ant. We're going to die if we crash. So I was like, man. And then the plane just went, foo, foo. And this lady said, oh, Jesus. And people looked at her and I said, miss, that's the right name. <laughs> that's the right name. Because that's it. We get ready to see him. But I wasn't afraid to die. I just didn't want to in that moment. But I wasn't afraid to die. And it wasn't because I think I'm so righteous, I'm good. It's because the promises of Scripture have something to say about those who believe in Jesus that die. So death no longer reigns over people who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a boogeyman because it's not the final say. It's the functional reality unless he returns before we physically die, but it's not the final say for us. So what he's saying is just as sin reigned in death, so also grace reigns through righteousness. There's grace in that. There's grace reigns more than that. And that righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to Romans chapter 6, and he says this. Our passage today would be the first four verses of Romans. Reading from the CSB, here's what he says. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now, as we know, Romans uses a lot of clunky language in ways that we don't communicate. So hopefully by the end of today, we'll be able to break down sort of what he means verse by verse. Let me say one thing that I think is the main point. It's not actually the main point of this passage. It's the main point that I think we need to take from the passage. It's not the thing that Paul is communicating, but it's what I want us to walk away from. And it's this. This is the main point. Obedience is, is boring, but necessary. Obedience is boring, but necessary. Obedience doesn't have the same excitement, the same mystique, the same suspense as sin and temptation do. Things that are forbidden are often, they seem exciting until we cross those lines and realize when the grass isn't, it's only greener on the other side until you have to cut it. Obedience is boring, but necessary. Now, for me, Romans chapter 6, in many ways, is one of the most shocking passages in the Bible. And if for no other reason, because it makes statements about our identity in Christ that are opposite of how we feel. So Romans, in this chapter, as we go through chapter 6, it's going to say statements, and we're going to agree with those statements mentally, but then we're going to come up against, man, that's not how I feel emotionally. Well, that's not maybe not how I live practically. So Romans 6 is a challenging verse. And so what Paul does, that's typical of him, he has this sort of philosophical diatribe, which is this technique where you are asking a question, sort of what we would call a rhetorical question today. He's asking a question because he's assuming, based on what he's saying, that someone's going to logically make up or bring up this point. And so he asks a rhetorical question to someone who doesn't necessarily exist, but then he answers this question. It's very much done in philosophy. You read books on philosophy, you'll see that books are sort of these mythical conversations the philosopher's having with two mythical people where he's explaining what his view is on the way life is. What's the meaning of life through this mythical conversation? This is from Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, all these people did this kind of thing. So it's, it's very common to assume you're talking to someone that you're not so that you can explain your understanding of the meaning of life. And so Paul does that here in verse 1. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Well, he's taking his cues from what he said at the end of chapter 5 when he says, well, sin was multiplied by the law. Grace was multiplied even more. Where sin and death reigned, now grace reigns. So the logical question is, well, then if sin produces more grace, then why shouldn't we sin more to get more grace? And it sounds like a good question. It sounds like a, a logical question. But it's actually not. It's a, it's a dangerous question. It becomes an ideology it's a question that I think Christians, including myself at times, have believed 
And people who profess to be Christians have walked away from the Lord because of this, this idea. See, if you rephrase the question, it's if sin being revealed is what made grace come, why not sin more so that God gives me more grace? But the problem is this is dangerous because if you strip away sort of the theological jargon, what you're really asking is, what you're saying is, since it's God's job to forgive, I can live however I want and he'll forgive me because of his grace. Now, some people call this cheap grace. Others call it presuming on grace. It's a dangerous theology. It's dangerous. It's a misunderstanding at the very least of grace. And it's a sinful disposition for any Christian to have. And sadly, I thought this way before. I thought this way. And I'm not talking about I thought this way in my thinking. I thought this way in my actions. Like functionally, I thought this way. See, grace, and you've heard me say this, but this is an important reality. Grace doesn't lower the standard of holiness. It just forgives us for not keeping it and encourages us to keep seeking it. This idea that it's God's job to forgive has some truth in it. But there's a difference between if I sin, God forgives. There's a difference between if I sin, God forgives, and, and I can sin because God forgives. There's a difference. The first one understands grace. If I sin, God forgives. That's 1 John 2, 1. Little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. However, if you sin... You know what he doesn't say? You don't believe the gospel. You're not a believer. You're not saved. He doesn't say that. He says, if you sin, you have an advocate in the Father, Jesus Christ. So that's biblical. If I sin, God will forgive. That's different from I can sin because God forgives. That's a different attitude. Because the first one recognizes then it's possible that I'm going to fall. The second says, I want to fall and just be forgiven. Now, none of us would think that way in a straight, linear thought. We're trained better than that, right? No one's going to say that. So we have to evaluate sort of functionally how do we think and feel. How long do I hold on to sinful judgment of other people? How long do I hold on to anger, a willingness to unforg- not forgive people? How excited do I, do, do I get to gossip about other people's lives, talk bad about people? How it just feels right to tell people off and be angry or give in to lust. I've done every one of these things, every one of them, every one of them, thinking I can sin because God forgives. There is a difference. There's a difference. 
If I sin, God forgives is a statement of identity. It recognizes that God has said, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, he will forgive me when I fail. That's an identity statement. I can sin and God will forgive is not an identity statement. It's a statement of the world. It's a statement of the world. God, speaking through Paul, challenges this perspective by bringing us back to our identity. In verse 2, the introduction of the identity starts to take shape in this passage. So he says in verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Verse 2, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin? This is our new identity. You died to sin. How can you still live in it? When you die to something, you can't live in it anymore. Now, to understand what he's doing in verses 2 through 4 and beyond this, you have to understand he, he's using the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an analogy of the Christian life. It's an analogy. So he's going to one-to-one what happened with Jesus and say, this also happened to you. And this is where it takes faith. Because in the natural realm, this is how we experience Christianity. Here's how we experience it in the natural realm. We hear the gospel. We believe. We find a church. We get baptized. We start to read our Bibles. We start to resist sin. We have fellowship with other Christians. We confess our sin. And then we fight to trust God the rest of our lives. That's sort of the natural realm understanding of Christianity. That's how we live. That's what we see and that's what we get at. What God is doing, this is a Wizard of Oz moment right here. God is going behind the curtain, taking us behind the curtain and seeing what's really there. So from God's perspective, here's how he sees people. Here's what happens when you believe in Jesus. This is God's perspective. This is the eternal realm, if you will. And he starts off in verse, he says that in verse 2. He said, you died to sin. From God's perspective, we died. We died. The old us died. Died. If you've been to a funeral, that person may look cleaned up, may even look better than they did when they were alive but they're dead. They're dead. Whatever was happening in their body, whether it was disease or anything they were experiencing, life in sin stopped. But from God's perspective, when people believe in Jesus Christ, you die. There was a death. There was a funeral and we are in the box. 
And it's an analogy for saying the sin that you were giving to no longer has authority over you. You don't desire, you die to the reality of wanting to do those things without any resistance. From God's perspective, it means you die. And this is where we get confused. But wait a minute, I still struggle with sin. I still give in to sin, sometimes willfully. Does this mean I'm not a believer? How do I process this? Listen to what he says in verse 1. Listen to the description that he gives. He's talking about a life of habitual sin that we no longer lead, which is why he used the word continue in sin. Continue. He's talking about continuing in sin. And then in verse 2, he says, how can we live in it? So continuing and living, those two words are important to understand what he's getting at. You know, sometimes, sometimes as believers, we, we struggle. We say stuff like, man, I'm struggling with anger or lust or whatever. And we think that, like, that's somehow a bad thing. And that's actually proof of conversion. What he's saying is when you continue and live in it, that means there's no struggle. There's no conviction. This is where the question comes in chapter 1, verse 1 is, well, if, 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 well, how should we, why should we continue in sin? We should be good committing sin because God forgives, right? Like this is a good thing. And he's saying, no, if you, you can't continue in it or live in it, when you live in something, it means you don't, re- you, don't, you don't resist it. You don't resist it. If you continue in it, that means there's no stopping it, right? You continue in it, and if you live in it, there's no resisting. And this is important. Let me tell you why this is important. Because we live in an age where we're afraid to say that people are continuing or living in sin because we think it's more loving, when the reality is, if that's what your life is doing, then that's what you're doing. There is no middle ground. Struggling is different, because when you struggle, you recognize that this is wrong. Struggle means, man, I'm fighting against it, and sometimes I lose. There's a difference between I can't wait to do this or there's no resistance. This is what he's getting at. We died. Analogically, Christ died. We died. He died for sin. We died to sin. That's the analogy. There's now struggle. There's resistance. Doesn't mean perfection. Doesn't mean flawless. It means there's genuine struggle. You no longer want to pursue those things. If you continue to pursue those things without struggle, then you are not a Christian. You are not a believer. 
This is from God's perspective. There's a distinction. We cannot pursue sin like it's nothing. Sin in certain ways like it's nothing. Not feel bad about it. Continue in it. And then be, can't wait to go to heaven. That's not the way it works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, you die. This is the first eternal reality. From God's perspective, God sees people who believe in Jesus. The minute you believe in Jesus, you die. You die. Because he's given you his spirit, and you no longer can enjoy sin in the same way you did prior to believing in Jesus. Doesn't mean we won't struggle. Doesn't mean we won't fight, get some pleasure out of some sins. And some of them will be harder than others to. This is one of the aspects of the Christian life that we have to trust God for. Is that we've died. The presence of struggle is very real in those who are genuinely believers. That's the first eternal reality is that we died to sin. Here's the second in verse three. He's asking a question. So we died this and how can we live in it any longer? Or are you unaware that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You know what I love about this verse, this question? Is Paul, before he starts with, let me bash you for thinking what you think in verse 1 and 2. Let me assume that maybe you don't get it. Let me assume that maybe you don't understand who you are before I start going after you for willful disobedience. Let me, let me assume that there's something that you don't understand about who you are now that you believe in Jesus. So let me give you that. That's Paul's assumption, I think. But I think from God, who Paul is speaking on behalf of, it's God's mercy and patience towards his son and daughters because he knows you don't understand who you really are. I know that you don't because I know everything. I know how you were created. Jesus understands because he was human. God knows, I know you don't understand who you really are. So let me make this assumption. Let me bring in this question instead of just firm correction. Now, I remember being in, in small groups back in the days. And I remember it was just like, oh, oh, the glories of the cross. And then you would confess some sin. And it'd be two hours of asking you all this stuff and pointing out all these idols that you didn't see, that you had a day so. And there'd be times I was like, well, man, stop asking me questions. If I don't see it, then, then don't ask me no questions. Stop asking me why it helped me understand this. Well, evidently, I can't help you understand it because I don't see it. And you'd walk away from these meetings feeling like a load of bricks was on your back. Yeah, I understand the gospel, but what I'm walking out with is a load of bricks of sins that I'm 
guilty of and almost feeling like I'm not a believer. Now, some people could bounce back from that. Well, a lot of people could not, though. And you sort of identify. If you, you know, that Snickers commercial was a brilliant commercial. It used to be like, but it's a brilliant commercial. People would be all crabby or something. They'd be like, man, eat the Snickers. Be yourself. You know, you are what you eat, kind of. It was a brilliant commercial. Because of what you think about yourself, you will act out. I think that's true. I think you think of yourself, I think you act some of that stuff out. You tell a person over and over, this is how they are, they'll believe that. Or it takes a lot of work to fight against it. So God is not presuming or angry. He's asking a question. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So here's the next eternal reality. We were baptized into Christ. And this was simply believing Jesus Christ. So from God's perspective, you believe in Jesus Christ, you died, and you're baptized into Jesus Christ. Theologically, this term is called union with Christ, where you are a part of Christ. You are in the body of Christ. The Spirit of God resides in those who believe in Jesus, and you are in Christ. So you see this terminology about being in Christ. You've been given his spirit. Is, you know, this, this is imputed righteousness is another theological term that comes straight out of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where you've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that's how God now sees you. God doesn't look at you and think of, see you as the person who fails. He sees you as the one who believes in Jesus and now has receiving, received some of the same, some of the same accolades, some of the same, you've got the same spirit. God sees you as belonging to Jesus Christ in Christ. Very weighty theological reality, which we'll unpack in a different sermon. But he says, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So this is, this is again, where faith needs to happen. Because in the natural realm, baptism is, is, is typically, typically baptism, typically is a process in which a believer, it goes down, is immersed. Some people don't believe in immersion where you bring someone down and up. I, I do. Some people do sprinkles, especially if you baptize babies. You're not going to put a baby underwater. You'll get, go to prison after that. In the natural realm, baptism is a process in which a believer goes down, is immersed, and then brought back up. And it's a symbolic gesture for saying, I'm cleansing myself. I've been cleansed internally. I'm demonstrating this externally. And this is my committing to a life of Jesus Christ. The going under the water means I'm going under with who I was and I'm coming up with who I am. So it's different. It's different. When I was in India... I think it was the first trip I went to India. We were in the, I want to say, what sea was that? Southeast India. Vizakaputnam. I don't remember. It, was, it wasn't the Indian Ocean. It was a different, it was a sea. You guys got Google. Y'all can look that up. So, and I remember these ladies would have these red dots on their head. And that was, they were, they were drawn to Hinduism. It was Hinduism was their religion. 
And when they became believers in Jesus Christ, they wanted to be baptized. And I remember, I was there for weeks. I remember, first of all, being blown away by the culture. There's, yeah, sometimes in America, you just need to travel. If you can travel, you need to leave America. Sometimes we just think we got it all figured out. Then you go to this beautiful place and you're just like, wow, these people are amazing. So I'm watching these women, some of them concerned because they know that to believe in Jesus for them means they're no longer going to wear this red dot that represents a belief in Hinduism, Shiva the destroyer and other other gods. And I would watch them be baptized, go under the water, and they would come up and each one of them, the dot was gone. Because it's really just like, kind of like makeup. They'd go down and come back up. And it was transformational to them. They were willing to accept the persecution, the potential conflict with their husbands, all of it, because they were now leaving sort of their their religion to follow Jesus. And the baptism for them represented a functioning, going into the water and coming up different. And that's sort of the understanding of how we think of baptism. It's a symbolic gesture for following Jesus Christ. It's an outward expression. But there's another way that baptism is used in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus would talk about this baptism that he has to undergo. And he wasn't talking about water because Jesus had already been baptized. In Luke 4, he got baptized by John the Baptist. Went under, came up, and the spirit descends upon him like a dove. What Jesus was talking about was something more violent. And actually, the word, the Greek word in this passage is not referring to baptism just as how we know it to be, this peaceful going in the water and coming back up. It's not, it's not in context. It's not speaking of it as sort of a declared, like when, you say, when we say we're justified, that's a state. You are justified before God. You are righteous before God. You are not guilty before God. But in the context of what he's saying here, he's not talking about baptized as a declared state. He's talking about as a continual violent activity. You see, the early church would associate baptism more with people like being drowned. It was a violent thing. The word baptism would be used for crowds who flooded the city to destroy it. The early church wouldn't have immediately thought of this peaceful process of going underwater, but sort of a violent struggle, if you will indicating that they're being baptized. And I think this is what Paul has in view right here. The baptism that he's talking about was we have been baptized into the violent struggle with Jesus against sin. It's not the peaceful declarative you've been baptized. It's you are continuing. You have been part of, you are now a part of this violent struggle against sin that is continuous. It's not like justify, like you've just been baptized. It does have that connotation. Sure, there is a declarative sense that we've been baptized. But in this sense, he's talking about a continuous struggle, somewhat violent struggle against sin. We were baptized into Christ. And now we actually take on this struggle. Not this peaceful, but a struggle of being baptized. When Jesus talked about being, he has to undergo a baptism, 
He was talking about a violent struggle that he's about to go through. Not a peaceful. Being on the cross was nothing peaceful for Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane proves that. In the eternal realm, we are baptized into Christ. So if you take the, the analogy, we get baptized in the water, we're baptized into the living water of Jesus Christ. We come up different. We come up with more of a violence against the things that we took pleasure in. There's a struggle. And what Paul is saying is it is impossible for anyone to be still and chill in their sin when they have been immersed in the Jesus for the warfare against sin and temptation. He's saying it's impossible for someone to live like that. So he's asking the question, God is wanting us to know, do you know who you are? This is how I see you. Do you realize that when you resist temptation, you are a part of the warfare? From God's perspective, this isn't flesh and blood. As, as Ephesians 6 tells us, your war is not against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not of this world, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God is saying, do you see how I see you? You have died. You are baptized into Christ. There is a death. You no longer have the desire to live how you were living. You can't live comfortably that way because I won't let you. You cannot Amen. It's almost like he's saying, are you unaware or don't you understand that you are part of Christ now? Do you understand that? He died for sinners so that we could die to sinning. That's what he's saying. Do you get that? Doesn't mean you won't sin. Listen, if God wanted us to stop, if the goal of the Christian life was to stop sinning, to not sin ever, he could have easily made that happen in his spirit. I mean, we have the spirit of God who raised Jesus. The, <laughs> the third person of the Trinity lives in us, right? If he wanted us to stop sinning, it could happen in a heartbeat. So what is he talking about? What is the Christian life about? It's not just the absence of sin. It's the presence of struggle. It's the presence of trust. It's faith. Because when I do sin, I have to have faith that you still say I'm your son or daughter. That's the struggle. If he wanted to eradicate sin... This is one of the problems I see happening today. You can't eradicate sin. I'm sorry. You're not going to eradicate race and injustice, racism. You're not going to eradicate it. Wherever people are, sin is. You can't eradicate it. You're not going to eradicate arrogance. You're not going to eradicate self-righteousness. But what do we do? We fight against it. We say it doesn't have authority over me in the same way because I've died to thinking that way. 
And depending on who we are, sometimes we have to remind ourselves, I don't think, I can't think this way anymore. I got to fight this. That is okay. That's the Christian life. Don't let the enemy fool you. Listen, <laughs> maturity is not the absence of sin. The Pharisees were righteous people. You know that, right? They didn't sin outwardly as much as people thought. This is why they were Pharisees. They were like, whoa, you can't even touch these dudes. Remember when the little kids were coming to Jesus and, and, and Peter and the disciples were like, whoa, 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 stand back. And Jesus said, no, nah. he got indignant. He said, Jesus was indignant. He was angry. He said, no, let the little children come to me. You know why? They, they said, whoa, 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 stand back. Because you couldn't touch the religious leaders in that day. You couldn't touch them. They were just doing what the cultural dynamic was. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't go up to the pastor. You can't talk to the pastor. I've been in churches where you can't talk to the pastor. Man. Now, I ain't going to say it because I need to die to that kind of thinking. Man, I've been in churches where you can't go up to the pastor. Man, please. You ain't nobody for real. There was this one church I used to go to, man, this dude, pastor. We'd be in the hallway, just me and him. Be walking down the hallway. Here he come. Here I come. I'm getting ready to say hello. He'd look at me and then look straight ahead. I'm from the street. I look straight ahead, too. I ain't tripping. I kept walking. <laughs> Wish I would have had some AirPods. I would have put them things right in, right in front of me. That's my own pride. I'm dying to that. It's a process. Some people do a 180. I've hit every degree. I'm at 137 right now. But I'm dirty. I'm dirty. I'm just at 137. I'm turning. This is where if I was a certain type of preacher, I'd be like, oh, you turning, church. <laughs> we ain't going to do that today. I don't want to keep y'all the Super Bowls coming on in a couple of hours. Listen, we have died and have been baptized into a violent struggle with Jesus Christ. Not against him, with him. So having said all that, he's, Paul is summarizing this, and he says this in verse 4. Therefore, in light of this reality, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So here's the next eternal, from the eternal realm, from God's perspective, you've been dead, you've been baptized, and now you've been, we've been buried and resurrected. You see what he's doing? God is using the literal scene, the visions of the cross to show us what's happening spiritually in the eternal realm to those of us who believe in him. He says we've been buried and resurrected. So everything that happened to Christ literally is happening in us spiritually. And the process of believing it is about faith. This is supposed to give us confidence to continue in the battle of sin and temptation. I remember in the, in the hunger, that's how, that's how we're supposed to be fighting like that. <laughs> supposed to be fighting like that. The scripture says a child shall lead them, so it might have been talking about ants, baby. We're supposed to have confidence. And this scene is supposed to help us 
see Jesus Christ, and gain confidence from that. Gain confidence from it. I don't know if any of you see the Hunger Games, but towards the end of it, remember, they were using her as sort of this icon for people to follow and, like, look up to, and she represented the resistance. So all the other districts would sort of follow in her footsteps. That's kind of what this is. Giving us the analogy of what Jesus did is supposed to encourage us to follow and to have faith and follow in his footsteps. It says we were buried. So we didn't just die, we were buried with him by baptism into death. So what Christ did literally, believing in Christ, God says now you've done, but it's happening spiritually. But it's also happening in our physical lives. We are dying to giving in to certain temptations and things, and that's what we're, we're after those things. We fight physically in the now to believe the promises of God, especially when we fail. I think, I don't think, the, you don't got, man, you don't got to talk about trusting God when things are going well. This is why I love testimonies. You know what testimonies are? Testimonies are, let me tell you what God did in the midst of despite. I've never heard no, anybody get up here and be like, you know, I just want to honor God right now. I've never gone through nothing in my life, and I've just had a good time, and it's been easy for me, and I just wanted to keep being easy, and I keep praising the Lord and hope there won't nothing come my way. Hallelujah! I've never seen that in no church in my life. But people will get up and be like, you know, I was praying to God that he would take this away, and he didn't. And I struggled, and there are days I still struggle, but you know what I've come to see? that God's done more in me and changed me instead of changing the circumstances. You know who said that recently? Kathy. And many others in this church. That's the spirit at work. If you hear somebody get up and be like, I ain't never been through nothing, take the mic. <laughs> Grab the mic. That's the devil is in your church. Christ suffered. Those who believe in Christ are going to suffer. Christ persevered in his suffering. Those who believe in Christ persevere in their suffering. From God's perspective in the eternal realm, oh man, he sees us as something much greater than we see ourselves as. So we have to have faith. We have to believe Jesus dying on the cross, that whole scene, dying, resurrected, dying, buried, resurrected, is what's happening to us. So we've been crucified, we've died, been buried, we've come alive. Listen to this. This says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So because Jesus came back from the dead, we too come back. Different. Jesus came back different physically, right? Remember when he was, when his disciples were walking with him in, in Luke 24? So they didn't know if it was Jesus. They didn't know who he was. It wasn't until he broke the bread they thought it was him. And then when he came to the shore, right? He said, let's, let's eat some fish. They didn't know if it was him. He came back different. 
He rose from the dead and came back and looked physically different. Even though he was God, he wasn't walking through doors and appearing out of nowhere and before he died. They would be talking like, yeah, man, I don't know what to do. Greetings. Where'd you come from? And the door was locked. Jesus? He'd just walk in. Walk right in and interrupted the conversation. Hey, man, I'm thinking about greetings. Thomas, put your fingers right here. Like, wow, out of nowhere. Show us how to do that. He came back different. He come up different. He come up different. This is why it's important to know obedience is boring, but it's necessary. It's necessary. And it's necessary for us because you know what? When you struggle with your salvation, it's usually because, usually, usually, not all the time, but usually when people struggle with their salvation, it's because they're not struggling with sin. Usually. Usually. They've just been giving in and like, I and you will not have confidence in Christ if you are being incompetent in your faith and pursuit. This is how it works. But when we're fighting, when we believe who God says we are, despite how we feel, there's grace for that. In the natural realm, heard the gospel, accepted the Lord, found the church, read my Bible, pray, fight sin, have fellowship, confess others my struggles. Same old, same old. It's kind of boring. On the eternal realm, oh man, you died, have been buried, baptized, resurrected, in a, in a violent struggle alongside Jesus, with Jesus with us, to not let sin reign over us, have authority over us. That is the Christian life. That is the message of these four verses. Questions?